Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as we turn there, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that you've given us to sing your praises. Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise and honor and worship. You are worthy of our attention. You're worthy of our affections. God, you are worthy of everything. So Jesus, we submit ourselves to you this morning. We submit ourselves to your word. Lord, knowing that you continue to speak to us, you continue to transform us and change us, and you continue to reveal yourself to us, God. So we pray today, open our eyes, soften our hearts, help us to receive your word with faith, that we could walk forth in obedience to you and in in joy in you. In your name we pray, amen. This morning we're covering a section in 1 Corinthians That can be rather confusing. Now, before we go there, does anyone know why we take off our hats during the national anthem? Right? We sing a national anthem at at ball games. And when we sing the national anthem, men take off their hats. Right? Does anyone know why we do this? Sign of respect, right? Okay, so it's a sign of respect. Why would removing your hat be a sign of respect? Ever think about that? Like, okay, that's an odd thing. Take off your hat as a sign of respect to, to the nation or, you know, to the soldiers or whatever people have sacrificed for us. But why would taking off your hat be a sign of respect? Right? So I, I've got that same question, right? So I'm just, I'm curious why that was. Now, it's been, a, it's actually a law. It's actually a law in the United States that you must remove your hat when a rendition of the national anthem comes on. It's, it's law, the title 36, chapter 10 says this, During a rendition of the national anthem, men not in uniform should remove their headdresses with their right hand and hold their headdress at their left shoulder, their hand being over their heart. It's actually a, a national law for us to do so. But the ironic thing is we don't really know why that's respectful to take your hat off. Now, it, part of that goes back to, and it's part of my research, finding that, okay, part of that goes back to the fact that when they believe when, when knights had their, their full you know, armor on and they would approach a king or a dignitary, they would remove, they would take their, their visor off their face so you could, see who the, you could see who the knight was, and he'd do so with his right hand so you could see whether he had a weapon or not, whether he was armed. And so there was this sign of respect, but... We don't really know why that, that took place. Now, we're going we're gonna to turn to a section in, in 1 Corinthians where it talks about head coverings. So sometimes we read this and think, wow, you know, in this section of Scripture, it, it talks about a few things that we've got questions about. And we may come to the end of these verses and say, well, should women be wearing head coverings? And why would that be? And, and what's the big deal? What's the significance of that? Well, I hope to get to that this morning and really bring, shed some light on that. Now, in this section of 1 Corinthians that we're, we're entering into, chapters 11 through 14, it's specifically regarding the gathered community together of God's people. And so he begins to address, so Paul was just talking about in the previous chapters, talking about our conduct outside really the four walls of the church. And we know that the church is more than just a building. 
it's the people of God. But as we talk about this, it's helpful to, to kind of vernacular of, of, of where we live in our culture, like this is the church. So as we gather together, we are the people of God, gathered together in his name for his glory to declare his praises. But we gather together in a way that says, okay, now as we gather, what should that gathering look like? What should be the, 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 the priorities of our time together as God's people? So we just got done looking at, okay, what, how do we interact with each other in regards to lawsuits? So in, in a court of law, how do we behave ourselves at, a, at the temple and the temple practices and all that stuff? How do we behave ourselves in, the, in people's homes? So now he's moved from kind of outside the church. Now Paul in this chapter is beginning to move inside the church. And he's saying, look, there are some ways in which we conduct ourselves as we gather together that are very important for us to understand. So we're going to look at that this morning. Now, Paul is exhorting the church, if you remember, in the very first chapter, Paul's exhorting the church to be in complete unity in all things. Now, he can say this because Jesus Christ, who died and gave his life for our sins, has ransomed and redeemed a people for himself, that now we are brought into God's family. And he says, look, I want you to be in complete unity as a family of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, because it's a, it's a declaration to the rest of the world what Jesus Christ is like and the power of his redemption. So he's exhorting the church to be in complete unity. Now what happens in these next few verses in chapter 11 is that it's almost loaded with cultural significance that gets lost over the past 2,000 years. Now, what we're going to do this morning is try to make some sense of the culture then to help us understand what does this mean for us this morning. Now, before we begin reading, I want to just read one quote from a commentary I read this week. Craig Blomberg writes this, This passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. Let that build your faith, okay? It's like, wow, this is, this is some heavy stuff here. But let's dig into this together, believing that God still continues to speak and that he's going to help us to understand his word. First, First Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, is this confusing at all? Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was, was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife 
to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Anyone is inclined to be contentious. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. Can you see where Craig Blomberg was getting at when he wrote about this is a very complex, controversial, and opaque text? It's hard to understand. But what he's getting at is behavior during the worship service. He's addressing certain kinds of behavior as we gather together, as the church gathers together in his name. So there's specific ways in which we behave ourselves, which we conduct ourselves, so that we together will glorify God in a way that honors him and respects and cares for the other people around us. That's what he's getting at. And so instead of us this morning really dialing into the very specifics, what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at the big picture and the principles of what Paul's getting at. Okay, so let's start. Number one, it's okay to find our position under authority. It's okay for us to find our position under authority. This is the truth that we need, that Michelle and I, we need to teach our kids every single day, okay? Please clean your room. Why do I have to clean my room? There, there's, there is a there's a, an argument waiting to be had. There's, there's a, a, an authority that, that, that does not want to be submitted to or surrendered to. Why do I have to clean my room? Because dad said so. Well, you know, you can see where no one, even from the earliest age, no one likes authority, the idea of authority. Now, the reality is, is that with our children specifically, God has, and we have to tell us to our kids, look, God has given you God's given you a mommy and daddy because God, number one, loves you and cares for you. And mommy and daddy are asking you to do things that we believe are in your best interest, to care for the things that God's provided for you. And we're asking, and we're also doing this in, in light of the fact that God has given mommy and daddy authority over you in your life. Not because we're bigger or stronger or smarter, because this is the way God has ordered our lives. And for the rest of your life, we tell our kids this, for the rest of your life, you will be under authority whether it's at your work or at church or in the world or wherever you are, we cannot escape the, this understanding of authority in our lives. And it's God's gift to us to protect us and care for us. God's given you a mommy and daddy to look after you, to help train you and raise you up. So, you under, so you, you, as you grow up to know the Lord, you're not just a lazy bum who destroys his stuff, right? I mean, that, we want you to do this because we love you. We're developing your character in these things. But that in no way communicates value or worth in terms of our authority over our kids. It does not mean that mommy and daddy are, are worth more in God's eyes or in anyone else's eyes. Or that somehow we're more valuable than you because we're bigger or stronger than you. See, our children are made in the very image of God. It's like every, every person on the face of this earth made in the very image of, of, of God in his grace and his glory, created each one of us in his image. And every person is worthy of, of dignity and respect and honor. No one is worth more than another person. Everyone created in the image and glory of God. But as we, so we can almost think, and we don't want our kids to think this ever, but like, oh, we're worth more than you because you're little or you don't bring as much to the table as mommy and daddy do. That's not truth at all. When we read 
in this section of Scripture, especially verse 3, where it talks about the head of a wife as her husband, my immediate, my immediate thinking then is oftentimes, well, that, what does that say about a woman's worth or value, or a wife's worth or value towards her husband? He's, what he's not getting at is somehow a woman or a wife of a husband is, not, is, is less valuable or is not worthy of respect and honor in any way at all. As a matter of fact, we can see this because Paul roots this understanding of headship in the marriage relationship back into the Trinity itself. He doesn't just arbitrarily throw that out there. He roots this truth in the very Trinity itself, and he says, look, God is the head of Christ. Now, when he begins to talk about God as the head of Christ, he's not saying God the Father is somehow worth more than God the Son. He's not saying that somehow God the Father is, is, is smarter or stronger or able to figure things out better than, than God the Son is. He's not saying that at all. See, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three in essence, three in unity, but distinct. Three in nature, but distinct in person. And when we read about Jesus Christ and his work on earth, in Philippians chapter 2, it says he humbled himself and became a servant. And we read about that, we don't think, wow, that's really weak. Man, that's, that's weakness right there. When we read about Jesus Christ and him following his, the, the, the wishes of the Father, we, we read that and we think, man, that is unbelievable humility and strength. That is who Jesus Christ is. Right? He's not weak because he follows the Father. He's an unbelievably humble and strong in following the wishes of the Father. Not in value, not in worth. Now, both men and women are under authority. And so often this, this verse and this section of Scripture has been abused by men or by the church or whatever else saying, okay, I'm your authority. You need to submit to me. You need to do what I say. That is not where this is going at all because as he is rooting this back into the Trinity, that's not how we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit interacting with one another at all. This is a way in which God says, look, I'm going to provide, I'm going to provide a structure and a care for your life. And so God does that in, in, in regards to the Trinity but everyone is under authority. Because we read, man as well as woman, are, they're both under the authority of God. No one, is, no one is free from authority. And But what this says, though, is the law of love, as we've been talking about, this law of love, this understanding that my love for my brothers and sisters trumps so much of what I feel like I want to do, but because of that, I may limit myself or may have to give of myself, that I would limit myself my freedoms for the sake of others that God's placed in my life. And if you've been a part of a, of a broken relationship where this has been used against you, God is able to redeem even our brokenness. God's able to redeem that. God's able to redeem the, the times that this has, been abu- this has been wrongfully taken to mean you must do what I say, or I'm the boss, or the Bible says to submit to me, and we take the Bible and use it as a club. God is able to redeem the brokenness in our lives. When we see that the, the beauty in which God has created this to be is, is us functioning 
All of us functioning under the authority of God, submitting ourselves to Him and following Him. Number two, we respect others and worship within the community's expectations. Okay? Respect others and worship within the community's expectations. I remember a church service I was at years and years and years ago. This wasn't at Mercy Hill. I was at a church service, and in the middle of the, the singing, the guy behind me stands up, and he starts speaking in tongues as loud as he possibly can for the whole church to hear in the middle of service. Now, is he within his right to exercise his spiritual gift? Right? And we may say, like, man, that's great, this guy's speaking in tongues. We need more of, you know, prophetic and more of the tongues and more of all those things in church. But this guy stood up and just started going for it. And as much as we'd like to see more of the operation of the Holy Spirit in that context where we were as we're gathering our singing his praises, man, it was a distraction. And I don't think it was a blessing to anyone that was sitting around this guy. Because we're trying to sing and this guy's just going for it. Because the bottom line for us is we gather together. As we gather together as a church body, the bottom line is this, that we're here to keep our focus and our worship on the Lord. We don't want anything to distract from that focus. Our focus is the Lord and in His purposes and who He is and His glory. So anything that distracts from that, that pulls people away from that, we want to say, hey, look, man, that's not the right place. We respect the fact that God's given you the gift of tongues. But in this instance where we are and what we're doing, that may not be the most helpful thing. And we'll get to more of this later. But what Paul's talking about in verses 4 through 7 with head coverings, okay, this is where the cultural context comes in. The pagan temples in Corinth, if you remember, Corinth is a place of of lots of temples. There's all kinds of idolatry and, and pagan practices going on all over town. And so in the pagan temples, what the men would do, the priests, is they would take their togas and they'd pull it over their head as they began to pray and offer sacrifices to the, to the, the idols. So that was the way in which they dis, the, the priests would distinguish themselves from the rest of the people. Now, you can imagine, this is a, this is a young church. This church is maybe three, four, five years old. And all of the people sitting in the church are all brand new believers their whole context has been up until this point of the idols and, the, and the, the, the temples and that kind of pagan worship practices. That's what's going on all around. That's what they grew up in. That's what they know. That's what they've seen. And so we've got this young church, and Paul's telling the men, do not cover your head during the worship service. You can see where maybe someone who came into church who is a new believer like everyone else thought to himself, well, hey, look, the way in which we pray to the gods in the temple is by pulling something over our head. So in the church, to be spiritual like we were in the temple, we'll, pull our, we'll, pull, we'll put something over our head to signify that we're praying or we're offering sacrifices to God. So Paul's saying, look, we don't mix the two. Look, that, the, the, the temple pagan practices that you had participated in throughout your whole life and you've seen everyone do, that's not compatible to what we have in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I do not want men to cover their heads. This is not like the temple down the street. This is something completely different, and the two things are incompatible. So men, do not cover your heads. Now women, he talks about head coverings. Again, lots of temples. Specifically, one of the big temples there is the temple of Aphrodite. And... In Aphrodite, there was 
there was lots of temple prostitution that was taking place in their context. And one of the ways in which women would symbolize the fact that they're available would be to put their hair down. So people would know that the women are, they're single, they're, you maybe could negotiate a price, those kinds of things. And so if the women in the church were putting their hair down, maybe you could imagine them thinking, well, I'm free in Christ. We're no longer bound by social, what, what's going on in the society. We're free to do as we wish because in Jesus Christ we are free. We're not bound by what those people outside the church think anymore. We can do as we please. He's saying, look, you dishonor the Lord and you dishonor your husband when you come into church with your hair down because that tells everyone else that, A, you're not married, and two, you may be for sale. So you can see where Paul would say, keep something over your head. Because now we know that that woman's taken. She belongs to somebody. And so even though we have the freedom in Christ, Paul's saying, look, be conscious of the social restrictions that are around you. Be sensible to those things. Yes, we have the freedom in Christ. So men, don't cover your head like the pagans. Women, don't let your hair down and uncovered like the pagans. Now, ironically, in our culture today, it might actually be more of a distraction for women to wear like some kind of headdress thing when she's praying. If a man stood up and prayed with a, a ball cap on, he's free to do that. Now, there's still a sense of, in our culture, still a sense of respect in removing your hat when you're, you're praying or you're, you know, the national anthem's going on a baseball game. So that might be a distraction for people, still. So at that point, we'd say, hey, look, the, the, the big picture is that we would not be a distraction for anyone around us so we could freely worship the Lord, that all of our attention would be on God, not on whether someone's available or not or whether someone's trying to pray like the pagans. So you can see how that, the big picture is different from just the, the semantics of what this verse is saying. Now, that's the point. We keep the focus on the Lord. But that being said, the expectation in this scripture is that there would be participation in the worship service. Okay? So he says when a woman prays or prophesies, there's, there's this expectation that our gathering together is participatory. Right? This is not an opportunity for us to gather together to consume and sit back and watch. There's an expectation biblically that as we gather together, and this is one of our values as a church, is that we are gathering together to participate, to, take, to, to engage in worship. And that's why we want to encourage the church. If you've got a, a verse, or you've got an encouragement, or you feel like the Lord spoke to you this week, or God did something in your life this week, we want to encourage you to bring that. As we gather together, let's, let's hear what God has done in our lives. Let's gather together. That's what the beauty of a smaller church is, is that we can do that. If there's a church of 3,000 people and you open the mic up, we may be there for days on end. But as a smaller church gathered together, this is the beauty of it. We want to encourage this participation as we gather together to worship. That's what we want as a church. It's one of our values. Come ready to pray. Come ready to testify. Come ready to share a verse whether it's up front or with other people, after the service or during the break or whenever, as we're singing, share that verse with somebody if you need to. That's what we desire from us as God's people. This is not an opportunity for us to consume, but for us to participate. 
to bring all that we are as we gather together in God's name. And that's the expectation for the church in Corinth as well. Paul says, look, when you gather together and the women pray and prophesy, there's this expectation there that, that those things would be happening. That's what we want as well. That there's prayer and there's prophetic word and there's sharing of scripture together and there's sharing of life together. That's what we do. So, for instance, today, Brian is up front here. He's got the mic. During the, if during the time we're singing together, if you feel like, man, God's put a, a verse on your heart to share, come up and talk to Brian. He will help, help you find, okay, is, that the right, is this the right time? Is this the right place? You know, we want that. We, we desperately want that for our church. It's one of our values. Now, the last one is this, and this is the shorter one, but I, I do want to talk about this. Number three, live in the gender that God gave you. Live in the gender that God gave you. Verses 11 through 15 talk about an interdependentness, if that's even a word, an interdependentness between men and women. And in India, there's a, a temple cult, a temple prostitution cult called the Devasi. Deva, no, I'm sorry, Devadasi. And in this cult, women give themselves to temple prostitution, and in doing so, you, they remove themselves from the, what they believe is the, the normal, the, the, the culture that they live in to become goddesses. And as goddesses, they are no longer male or female. They are outside of that. And so they're free of any cultural shackles or change that would be put upon them. So you could see where a, a, maybe a woman who's in a very low caste goes to the temple to become a prostitute. Then now she's removed from that caste system, and now she's free. And so she's no longer male or female. She's outside of that system. She's no longer bound. She no longer has a husband. She's given herself to the prostitution in the temple. I don't think it would be a far stretch to imagine something similar in Corinth. With the temple prostitution going on, that women would, would give themselves to this thing and then no longer have to play by the rules of their culture. They become a goddess. But in our culture today, there's a, there's, a, there's a blurring of the genders. There's a blurring of gender issues, gender identity. There's a real blurring of that. Does it mean what it used to mean? If, if you're unhappy or uncomfortable with the way God made you, well, then you're free to change it, become something altogether different. But this is what I believe what Paul is also addressing in this is that God has created us perfectly and decided for us what we would be. And he's placed us within this authority of who he is. And his goal for us isn't that if we're unhappy, we change it. The hope for us is that God is able to redeem it. That even when there's confusion, when there's hurt, when, when we stand back and say, God, I don't know how you... I don't know how you made me to be this way, but I don't like it or anything like that. God is able to redeem our gender, who he made us to be. He's able to redeem that. He's able to work through those things. He's not bound by our, our dislike of who he's made us to be or our confusion in who God's made us to be. He's able to redeem that, all of who we are. We live in the gender that God has given us. And this is what the gospel does for us. It sets us free. The good news of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and our hope and our trust 
in Jesus Christ, we have been set free to worship Him, to love Him, to live for Him, to work for Him, to play for Him. We're, we're set free to live for Him with all of our lives, even in the difficult and broken places of our lives. Even when there's brokenness in our relationships, there's brokenness in our own sexual identities, God is able to redeem all of those things. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the, the way in which you have called us, redeemed us, and set us free. Thank you, God, that you desire for us to point back to you again and to declare your glory and praise. So, Lord, help us in all that we do, that we would be mindful and respectful of the ones that you've placed in our lives, and that in everything that we would do, Lord, we would honor and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.